This show is part of the Pika Science Podcast, studying the intersection of video games and science. Hey everyone, it's Madison. I wanted to thank you all for tuning in to this new show that we have going on here. And I want to thank Jillian and give you all a heads up. This show is awesome. And Jillian does a wonderful job. And I'm really excited to bring ecology to this podcast. So without further ado, this is a new show. It is called Ecology XP. Welcome to Ecology XP, a series by the Pika Science Podcast. I'm your host, Jillian Selkarowski Legree, and I'm here to talk to you about all things ecology and video games. For those of you who don't know me, I am a PhD student who studies arachnids and ecology. If you don't know much about ecology, that's okay. If you'd like a more in depth introduction, you can check out my interview with Dr. Ray in the Pokey Science Podcast. But for time's sake, in short, ecology is about how organisms and their environments interact. One of my goals for the EXP podcasts is to bring scientists, gamers, and gamer scientists together. So today, my gaming guest is my friend Kip. Kip, please tell us about who you are and what you do. Hi, everybody. My name is Kip. I am a, as you would call, a professional-grade dingus. I have had a love of Pokemon for the past, how many years has it been at this point? over 20 at this point right i'm actually older than pokemon and you know have seen from both it's wild to think about that isn't it (laughs) i've had a love of pokemon since the early days uh first one was fire red went back to crystal went back to yellow on gen one you know gone all the way up through current day and from a casual standpoint from a competitive standpoint smogon vgc you know pokedex lore entries if you will as well i just have an absolute love of it and there's a lot of science that can be applied to that you know so as far as pokemon credentials in regards to studying ecology and stuff in that aspect and what capacity i have uh, i was actually fairly good at biology in college (laughs) Uh, that's kind of that there i also enjoy games like resident evil and dead space I do apply the same logic there recently um, as of the recording of this. The Separate Ways DLC for Resident Evil 4 did come out, and there was some theory crafting in regards to the Verdugo and the seeming metamorphosis into the U3 type uh, in regards to uh, calcification, potentially uh, chitin. Uh, very interesting science yes. stuff. As a yes, yes, <laughs> entomology. Yes. <laughs> Well, today we will be talking specifically about the ecology of Viridian Forest, answering questions such as what kind of forest Viridian Forest might be based on details given in the Pokemon video game, manga, and anime. And we will also be discussing what kinds of interactions may be happening between Pokemon and their environment, as well as the real life of Viridian Forest and more. But before we can get to all of that, Kip, I may give a little bit of background, and maybe this will be familiar to you or not. Feel free to jump in at any point if you have anything to add. Viridian Forest first appeared in Generation 1 of Pokemon, released in February of 1996 in Japan as Pokemon Red and Green. The U.S. release is known as Pokemon Red and Blue, which happened in 1998. Viridian Forest is named after the town it is located near. Viridian City, and it's known as the City of Evergreen, hence Viridian, a name for the color green. In Japan, it is called the Tokiwa Forest in the game and contains a similar meaning, referencing again the color green. 
Viridian Forest appears again in Kanto remakes, as well as any post-gameplay that features Kanto. These games include Fire Red, Leaf Green, Pokemon Heart Gold, so Silver, as well as Let's Go Pikachu and Let's Go Eevee. As a Pokemon trainer, you encounter Viridian Forest early in the game, located between Viridian City and Pewter City along Route 2. Viridian Forest is said to be a natural maze where people can get easily lost. The forest is extremely dense and prevents much light from entering. Now, Kip, I don't know if you remember the first time you played these games and you get to Viridian Forest. It's like one of the first big stops along the journey. Do you remember that? Oh, absolutely. I remember Viridian Forest very both fondly and unfondly. Fondly because, you know, with the tile sets that they used, uh, depending on the version of the game that you're using, potentially have lighting, you know, Gen 4, uh, I almost said BDSP, excuse me. (laughs) Depending on the engine that you're using in regards to Diamond, Pearl, um, which at that point was the Gen 4 engine, which Hard Gold, Soul, Silver was based off of, you did have tree tree shadows. (laughs) And... um, (laughs) And which leads to that claustrophobic atmosphere. Viridian Forest is a very lush and vibrant forest, and it has a you know a lot of that foliage, a lot of that cover, and it leads to that maze-like effect that you were mentioning before. And a couple of trainers have generally stood out. Uh, the topmost portion, top rightmost of the map. I know there's a trainer. I think he has uh, he has a few. I think it's Caterpie. I think specifically. And you always have the the two trainers at the end uh, in regards to potential progress gates. And this was really at a point in the game where it was doing a couple things in terms of game design, world building, lore building, etc. Where you have these bug Pokemon. You have your Weedle, you have your Caterpie, uh, Pikachu, if you own the right spots. You know, a little bit of a different spawn rate, but you did have Pikachu spawning in Viridian Forest. And you could see, going through Viridian Forest, one, you could see the effect of evolving bug Pokemon just inherently without even evolving it yourself. Oh, what's that Weedle? Oh, it evolves into a Kakuna? What is that? It knows Harden. Okay, clearly that it is using its already natural kite in the shell. It is hardening its defenses. Okay, this logically makes sense. And... It's already showcasing early on the evolution mechanics, how Pokemon are able to grow, how they're able to adapt to different uh, situations and environments, and as well as showcasing certain things as status moves. Bug Pokemon, especially in the early generations, as you and I have both discussed, have unfortunately not always been the, the most competitive. They've not always been the strongest, which is a huge L for early bug Pokemon. However, they did have moves such as Poison Sting. They had moves such as String Shot. And um, this showcased early on that it's not just about power. There are other things to consider. And you could be running through Viridian Forest and your Charmander or Squirtle could be hit by a poison sting and suddenly you're poisoned. Now you have to deal with the poison mechanic. So there's a number of things that Viridian Forest does, not only from an ecology standpoint, as far as justifying why certain Pokemon are doing certain things, why they're certain ways, what movesets they're doing, you know, justification on that point from a world building standpoint, but also from a tutorial mechanic standpoint. It's already explaining evolution. It's already explaining trainer battles. It's already explaining status moves, which is just excellent. Viridian Forest is definitely one of the most iconic spots for especially early Pokemon trainers because that is the first time a lot of us learned how Pokemon, the game, the series, the entire franchise, how it worked. So I'm really excited to dig deeper into Viridian Forest today. Okay, Kip, as you mentioned before, 
Viridian Forest is full of bug-type Pokemon. That is what it's known for. We encounter a lot of bug-type trainers. What Pokemon, what are all the Pokemon that live in Viridian Forest oh, that's that a, we know of? That's a very good question. And citing the lovely Cerebi.net, been following it for, God, over a decade at this point. Back in Pokemon Red and Blue, we did have the spawns of Weedle and Kakuna, so the Weedle line. We did have Caterpie, Metapod, as well as Pikachu, as aforementioned. However, it gets a little interesting as when you do get into Pokemon Yellow, which was the quote-unquote definitive Gen 1 edition. It was back when Pokemon was doing that third game in a generational cycle. We did add the Pidgey and Pidgeotto spawns into that pool. I know later generations add Pokemon like Spinarak, Ariados, Butterfree, Beedrill, Ledian um, as Pokemon you can catch. It's not a complete list, but I know down the line they expand the diversity of Viridian Forest. So as you mentioned, the only non-bug types that you can catch happen to be Pikachu and in yellow Pidgey, Pidgeotto. As new generations have come along, some versions allow you to catch Hoodoot, Knocked Owl, Seedot, Trumish, Oddish, Bellsprout, and even a rare Bulbasaur. I don't know if you knew that. I don't think I actually knew that. I know, I think in Let's Go you could. That's very interesting. I'll have to go back and look into that. Thank you. So based on what we see in the game, anime, and manga, I wanted to know if it was possible to figure out what kind of forest Viridian Forest was. Like, how can we scientifically classify it? So let's dive into some of the details given about Viridian Forest. In the original Pokemon Red, Green, and Blue, we don't get much visually on Viridian Forest. Based on the game, we essentially see one single species of tree, one single species of tall grass, and one species of mushroom. It's like this little, I think it's like a red mushroom. I'm not totally sure, but it's like red with yellow dots, perhaps a reference to Mario. I'm not sure. But in these versions, Viridian Forest looks a lot like a man-made tree stand that Viridian City may or may not use for logging. And if you're unfamiliar what a tree stand is, um, as it's implied, it's man-made. Um, it's typically one type of tree that's planted in a row that's used for logging. By Gen 3, Fire Red and Leaf Green, we do get the addition of some flowers. Great addition. But again, not really enough to consider this a natural-looking forest. In the most recent version of the Contour region, the Let's Go Pikachu and Eevee games, we get the most visual details that can clue us into Viridian's forest type. So this is after um, Game Freak left the pixel art behind and started doing this more 3D-esque landscape. In ecology, we often label ecosystems and landscapes based on the vegetative community. So I wanted to get specifics on these plants that show up in Viridian Forest. Namely, what species live there? I reached out to some biologists and enthusiasts to get their take on the plant species of Viridian Forest, and here's what they said. And I'm so excited to tell you because I, I mean, I knew it was kind of possible to look at these pictures and think like what kind of forest this is. To clarify the pictures I sent, I think one is from the game. So the pixel red and blue. And then I also sent pictures from Let's Go Eevee, Let's Go Pikachu that gave the more detailed, more biodiverse setting. I mean, from the gaming standpoint, I mean, if we're going back to, you know, Fire Red and Leaf Green, which is more my home territory where I feel a little more, you know, 
familiar with. It does look like it's some form of pine, you know, looking at a quick Google search, you know, there are certain variants of pine. It is unfortunately limited by the tile set at the time. You know, they can only do so much with the memory that they have. You know, it totally makes sense. And as you're saying, absolutely through the generations, it has evolved. You go one generation ahead to hard gold, soul silver. And instead of a pine, there are these more round trees, and that could be, you know, uh, pruning the trees in a certain way. As you mentioned, if the tree stands, if this is maybe used for logging, there could be some practices involved there. It's very interesting. And then you look at, as you were mentioning, the Let's Go series, and you're able to see, you know, different variants of it. You also do see that iconic pine from the Fire Red Leaf Green models, that iconic, you know, triangular conical shape. I'm really glad you pointed it out because I'm about to go into a deep dive about all of this art. One of my friends, her name is Brittany, she's an entomologist from New York. She saw the screenshots and she noted that it looked like beech trees and some older oak trees. And I'm not quite sure which screenshot in particular she's referencing to, but she also noticed the presence of sedges and ferns. So I'm going to assume this is based on the Let's Go series. I have another friend who's a botanist, Ethan Rose. He's from Michigan State University, and he named several groups of plants from the photos. Araceae, and for those of you who don't know what Araceae is, it's commonly known as peace lilies. You see them a lot at funerals. I got one from my grandpa's funeral. He also pointed out some ferns, hostas, hydrangeas, tulips, irises, and deciduous type trees. So this has to be from the Let's Go screenshot. That's a lot more biodiverse than when we consider Gen 1, where it's just those conical pine tree looking trees. It's just one species and the tall grass and that's it. Oh, absolutely. And we end up seeing even in the Gen 3, Gen 4 sprite sets, you know, we are able to see certain flowers. We're able to see a little more biodiversity in regards to, you know, flora. It's it, it was minimal at the time, though. So, you know, as we've evolved, you are seeing this diet. <laughs> has this evolved you are seeing this biodiversity and it's so awesome to hear other scientists chime in on this it's very interesting just to see how diverse and lush this forest is and potential interactions we know pokemon tower and lavender town right is the resting place of pokemon so maybe they source their lilies from here oh that's a really good point i didn't even think about that one thing ethan made note of was that the style the actual art style seemed to be inspired by human landscapes like parks, yards, or gardens rather than a natural looking forest. So again, referencing back to us being like, yeah, this looks like a tree stand, not necessarily something that has been there like an old growth forest, perhaps. And last but not least, I talked to Brady, who's a communication major with a passion for nature and Pokemon. He worked with me to look at real-life Viridian Forest and what possible real-life species could be represented by the game artists. But more on that in just a moment. So based on these clues about plant community composition and notes from Pokemon such as Viridian Forest being dense and dark, all of us seem to agree that Viridian Forest is largely indicative of deciduous forest. And deciduous forest is made up of mostly broadleafed trees that lose their leaves during cold seasons. Think of fall. Common deciduous plants include oak, beech, birch, chestnut, aspen, elm, maple, basswood. So things a lot of, I would say a lot of at least North Americans are familiar with since we seem to have a lot of deciduous forests, especially once you reach like the northern states and Canada. I'm not quite sure about Mexico. 
Since the Kanto map is based on the real-life Kanto region of Japan, we can get an idea of what real-world place Viridian Forest may be symbolizing. In this case, the location of Viridian Forest is similar to that of the Okuchichibu mountain region in Japan. I hope I pronounced that right. I'm really sorry if I did that wrong. It sounded good enough to me as someone who took Japanese for three and a half years. I heard people pronounce things in wild ways. I heard Nagasaki pronounced Nagaski. You're doing amazing by comparison. Oh my gosh, I would have cried. <laughs> so let's first take a look at the ecoregion of Okuchichibu. What is an ecoregion, you ask, Kip? Yes, what is an ecoregion? I would be, I want to know. I need this answer. Sounds like the word ecosystem, doesn't it? Well, let's take a quick detour. An ecosystem is a community of organisms and their surroundings. Ecosystems can be really big or really small. Think puddle or ocean. That is the scale we're working with here. Those both can be considered ecosystems. An ecoregion is an area where the ecosystems are generally similar. So an example of this would be southern Florida. Southern Florida has a lot of wetland ecosystems, and this ecoregion is known as the Everglades. Getting the idea now? Oh, absolutely. No, that totally makes sense. Where you can have, say, you're in an area with hypothetically a few different lakes. And in the first lake, you end up finding maybe you know, largemouth bass. You find some tilapia. You find some bluefin. Excuse me. You find some bluegill. You know, lake two, you might be able to find, you go far enough away, you might find some pike, some sturgeon. And, you know, all of these have their predator-prey relationships. All of these have their food webs, their food chains. All of these have that uh, conservation of energy as it goes up through the food chain, you know. It, they're similar enough in an area where instead of a singular ecosystem, as they each have their minute differences, they would be, as I understand it, a region. Put a pin in that food chain stuff because I'm really excited to talk <laughs> about that towards the end of the episode. Anyways, <laughs> back to our original question. What is the ecoregion of Okuchichibu Forest, a.k.a. Viridian Forest IRL? The answer is the Honshu Alpine Conifer Forest. But what do all those words mean? I know conifer. Conical, mm -hmm. I think. Was it? Mm -hmm. okay. I know some of these words. Anyways, in short, Okuchichibu is defined by its coniferous plant species and is within a mountainous region. A stereotypical conifer would be pine trees, like we talked about, aka the genus Pinus. In Okuchichibu, the main conifer tends to be northern Japanese hemlock, Suga diversifolia. While the location of Viridian Forest in relation to real-life Kanto could be accurate, this doesn't seem quite right to me. The games and anime point to a deciduous forest, right? Not a coniferous forest like Okuchichibu. Luckily, my friend Brady, who I mentioned earlier, helped me look through some of these photos, linked me to an article by someone who might be the closest thing we can get to an expert on mapping out the real-life Kanto as it appears in the video game. Have you ever heard of this person, Kip? I unfortunately have not. I, I learn new things every day. In fact, it's why I love content creation. It's why I love talking to different people, talking to scientists, talking to so many cool people from so I'm many I'm glad I get to life. teach get you to something new about Pokemon, day. because whenever we talk, I feel like I'm the one who knows zero, and you're the one who knows everything. So, haha, I've turned the tables on you today. <laughs> take that. Take well, the that guy I'm talking about it. is Alexander Lawrence, and he claims to be the first person to tour across the real-life Kanto region. So, Kanto region, Japan, but as it relates to the game, not to be confused. 
Lawrence appears to have a passion for identifying real-world counterparts of the Pokemon world, often posting on Twitter about theirs and others' findings, as well as official announcements from the Pokemon company. You can find Alexander Lawrence at Grand Tour, G-R-A-N-D-P-O-K-E-T-O-U-R. I scrolled through the Twitter a little bit, and it's actually super cool. It's all of it's like this Pokemon fan community that gets together to find the the exact locations of what a lot of the places in Pokemon are based off of, or how it's relative to the real life region. So, like con- fictional Kanto versus real life Kanto. It's super cool. I highly recommend checking it out. In an article that Lawrence wrote for Medium, he points out that the Chichibu Tamakai National Park, where the Okuchichibu Mountains are located, is far too large to be representative of Viridian Forest. He wanted it to narrow it down to a smaller location. Instead, Lawrence said a forest within Hakone, specifically Moto Hakone, is more likely to be representative of Viridian Forest. So it's actually super interesting because when we go from Viridian City to Pewter City, while it is, yes, a maze-like forest, as is stated, it doesn't feel like it's all that large. And well, there could be argument that due to the tile set, due to memory at the time, due to just design, map layout, linearity, it could only be so complex. I would argue quite the opposite. It does come across as a smaller forest. Yes, absolutely dense. You can have a smaller forest, but it'd be dense. You can have a larger forest, but you can, you know, have spots between the trees. Every time I've gone through Viridian, it does seem like it is a smaller wooded area. Yes, absolutely dense, lush. It's got its own ecosystems and eco-regions, depending on, I guess, which version we're talking about of Viridian Forest. I think that this is the logical step, and I actually really like that he brings attention to this. It does feel like a more compact experience between the two towns. Yeah, exactly. It's this super interesting little pocket that you can definitely expand, right? So... Lawrence's note made me dig deeper into what this forest in Motohakone looks like. The first thing I came across was a forest within Motohakone called Cedar Avenue. That's the translation. I don't know what the Japanese version is, but if you Google Cedar Avenue, you can get a lot of Japanese tourism sites that talk about it. Now, Cedar Avenue, this one really did look a lot more like Viridian Forest versus Okuchichibu, but it's still technically coniferous. Cedar Avenue is located between Motohakone and Hakone Machi. It is a 500-meter section of the historical Tokaido Road, the arguably most important of the Edo 5 routes that connected Kyoto and Edo, which is modern-day Tokyo, during the Edo period in 1603 to 1868. The Cedar Avenue in Motohakone is not the only Cedar Avenue to exist. Much of the five routes was covered with hand-planted Cryptomeria japonica, which again, I just read science words. I never have to say them out loud. I only have to write them. So I'm very sorry if a botanist somewhere is crying. But Cryptomeria japonica is Japanese cedar, hence Cedar Avenue. Tokugawa Ieyasu and his grandson Tokugawa Iemitsu are most famous for planting the long cedar stands. But the original planting was begun by Matsudaira Masas. Masatsuna, who donated and planted seeds around the year 1625. Some of the original trees planted in the Edo period still stand to this very day, which I think is super cool, and this is a place I would love to visit sometime. Because Cedar Avenue is, well, 
cedar, thus making it coniferous, I search for deciduous forests of Hokone. Because again, everything we're getting is coniferous, but the art is telling us deciduous. So where the heck are the deciduous forests of Japan? And specifically the Kanto region. Mota Hakone is well known for its vegetative diversity. And as you go up in altitude around 800 meters, oak trees are a common sight, including willow leaf oak and Japanese blue oak. Throughout Hakone and the upper altitudes, deciduous forests find their way up the mountainscape and intermingle with the beech forests. If you recall earlier, these are all plant taxa that I agreed upon with the other um, botanists and scientists. It would make a lot of sense for Viridian forests to be based on these forests that surround a mountainscape. But, there is a but, but after all of this research on Cedar Avenue and the deciduous forests of Hakone, there was a twist. Do you want to guess where the twist comes from? If I had to give a crack at it, I would assume because Pewter City, Pewter, you know, being the color of stone, or at least being referential to stone, is a quarry town as far as I was aware from related media such as uh, Indigo League, you know, uh, admission from NPCs within the game. You know, it, it's dealing with stone. I would assume at that point, hypothetically, Pewter City could be at a higher altitude. So from Viridian to Pewter, you're actually climbing an altitude. That is my best guess with the information I have present. Wow, that is really insightful and not what I'm about to say. <laughs> <laughs> When I was searching for images of Viridian Forest, after I had done this deep dive through the forests of Japan, I stumbled upon the 2019 Viridian Forest Sun and Moon card for the Pokemon TCG. And do you know what kind of forest the artist made for this card? I do not. I have been in and out of the Pokemon TCG for a number of years, and it's always certain cards that hold certain secrets. I'm very interested to hear what this, uh, hear the answer on this. The kind of forest the artist depicted for Viridian Forest was, drumroll, coniferous. So I had done all the searching for deciduous forest, and now the artists decide that it is a coniferous forest. So the card itself looks like spruce trees or a kind of pine, such as sugar pine, that appears to have a fuller body to it. There are only a handful of spruce trees that are native to Japan, though I'm not totally sure about introduced species. But while Japan has impressive pine trees, sugar pine itself is not a native species. And since I'm not well versed in Japanese vegetation, I can't speak on any certain species, but the trees for sure had coniferous bodies in this card. So all that being said, what the heck kind of forest is Viridian Forest? Based on all of this information from the game, from the anime, from the manga, the TCG, is it coniferous or is it deciduous? I will say also for consideration in regards to TCG continuity versus other continuities, there's multiple different lines of continuities. So while something is a you know official Pokemon TCG product and it does showcase one avenue, one thought train, if you will, that might not necessarily be indicative of the other avenues. It's, for example, you have... Yu-Gi-Oh, the, uh, for example, you have Yu-Gi-Oh, the Dark Side of Dimensions, which is manga canon, versus if you go to the anime, it's not anime canon. There's multiple different lines of continuity. There are people that will argue, say, the Star Wars sequel trilogies are not canon. There is me <laughs> that will say, you know, as much as I love Force Unleashed, it just doesn't fit in canon or legends. So 
bringing these circling back while we do have a confirmation in regards to one finding that could also be not from an ecological standpoint this could be merely from an artistic standpoint and not necessarily indicative of other forms of the same media that's a good point kip i appreciate that and i do have some good news to share (laughs) there is such thing as mixed forests and in this case based on all of the evidence that I have gathered, I feel semi-confident saying that Verdian Forest is a mixed deciduous coniferous forest inspired by Japan's beautifully diverse forest landscape, and I believe it is close in match to Hakone as suggested by Lawrence. So that brings me to my next question. What do we think a normal day looks like in Verdian Forest? I've always considered Viridian Forest to be a staple for bug-type Pokemon, though it is realistically, like we talked about, not very diverse. Gen 1, we essentially get two species, if you will, of bug types. We have the Caterpie evolutionary line and the Weedle evolutionary line. This may not... I'm going to interject there. Go ahead. We do get Paris line. We do get Paris line. In Gen 1? It's not in the forest. We get Paris and Parasect in Gen 1. They are near Mount Moon, I believe, if not in Mount Moon. Okay. In Viridian yep, Forest? Yep. <laughs> They're in Viridian Forest? No, no. We don't We, we don't get them in Viridian Forest. Gen oh. 1 has other bug types. We have two strains of bug type in Viridian Forest. The third oh, is Mount Moon. Oh, I did not know that. Thank you. Ran- random niche information, I remember. While Viridian Forest may not be very diverse by having only essentially two species, these species themselves are extremely prolific. So if we want to expand to all gens, we get in total about five bug evolutionary lines total. So what kind of Lepidopterans, which are butterflies and moths, and Hymenopterans, bees and wasps, can we expect to find in Motahokone? The one that jumps out at me first is Beedrill. Beedrill being representative of a species called Vespa similima. Similima? I'm an entomologist. I don't know how to say these things. AKA the yellow hornet. Not to be confused with Vespa mandarinia. I think that's, again, how you say it. The giant Asian hornet, AKA the world's largest hornet, AKA murder wasp, whatever you want to call it. The one that everyone lost their minds over in whatever year because it somehow made it to i think washington something like that maybe it was like washington dc did you man that was a 2020 bingo sheet i remember oh Oh, yeah it was 2020 that That was 2020 bingo sheet Ooh, thanks for reminding me about that (laughs) (laughs) anyways these hornets tend to eat a wide range of insects and spiders and don't appear to specialize in prey and that's talking about vespa simulima Simil- similima? Similima. Yellow hornets are especially known for their large swarms and their aggression, which sounds a lot like Ash's experience in Viridian Forest when he was attacked by Beedrill. And I, this is one of the early Indigo series episodes. This was early Indigo League with the Metapod standoff, the absolute most gigachad anime battle in Pokemon. Metapod based. <laughs> Because the yellow hornet in real life is not particularly picky in diet, I imagine that Beedrill preys upon other invertebrates of Viridian Forest, like Caterpie, Spinarak, etc. Basically any bug type that lives there. 
in the same episode, Ash is saved by his caterpie, which then evolves into metapod based. Caterpie is commonly thought to represent Papilio glaucus, the eastern tiger swallowtail, tail, but this species is not found in Japan. So anytime you Google, like, what is Caterpie based off of? You will get Papilio glaucus, but if you want to talk about the real Kanto region of Japan, you cannot find Papilio glaucus there. If we Which want... Is super... Oh, go ahead. Uh, I was going to interject real quick. Which is actually super interesting because we do see a lot of, I would argue, exotic designs. We have Pinsir based off of, I believe it was the Hercules beetle. No, is it the Hercules beetle? Which one's Pinsir based off of? Pinsir. Rhinoceros is... Rhinoceros is is Heracross. Yes. Pinsir's Hercules? Um, Hercules okay. beetles are a type of rhino beetle, right? I forget I what they're called. Maybe it is Hercules. I'm a be. terrible entomologist right now. It's been forever. What Cutting. the heck are they? <laughs> Cut. Cut. Yeah. What beetle is, Which is pincer based on? I'm pretty sure it's a Stag beetle. beetle. It's a stag, it's a stag beetle. beetle. Okay, so they are native. So, cut. Which is interesting because we have so many exotic designs. You have someone like pincer right the design is as we found out a stag beetle going to gen 2 we have heracross which is a rhinoceros beetle from my understanding yes and regardless of in you know in gen 1 what the design is what the inspiration may be they all do seem to have roots into japan and the entomology thereof so i do think that this is a valid point to bring up as far as this species that butterfree is while yes you can search it up and it does look like it and this is you know clearly what it could be it also wouldn't be native to japan so that's also a great consideration when looking at something like this and the other thing is too is a lot of pokemon really aren't a one-for-one comparison to a real life animal or plant or whatever it may be it's usually some amalgamation of general parts like a frankenstein of all of those kinds of that animal put together into this one beautiful creature since not all of them are based on a one-to-one comparison it's hard to say what exactly, but if I were to say it is this particular species that is from Japan, it is more likely that Caterpie is based on Papilio exuthus, Papilio macon, I can't say any of these, Papilio helenus, or Papilio memnon. So we have four options for swallowtails it could be based on. So if you look up these species, you might notice that you do not see the little red antenna looking appendage that you typically see on Caterpie. But that is because this organ, which is called the osmaterium, again, words I don't know how to say out loud, is a retractable organ. All papillionid caterpillars have this organ, and the purpose of the osmaterium is to protect against predation. When disturbed, the caterpillar everts this organ, which emits a foul odor to predators such as ants, spiders, mantids, anything that may have scared it. While unpleasant smelling to invertebrate predators, to humans, it tends to smell like whatever the caterpillar has been eating, as well as pineapple. So that's what people think this, these caterpillars often smell like. And I don't know who is out there smelling caterpillars, but I would like that job. Actually, I take it back. You absolute I would, <laughs> legends. I, I would not like that job. That sounds, that actually sounds pretty bad. 
if you are a caterpillar smelling person, I apologize. <laughs> in Soul Silver, Spinarak and Ariados are also introduced as the newest invertebrate members of Viridian Forest. You can only catch these Pokemon by headbutting a tree and hoping that they fall down. Spinarak is thought to be based on the species Theridion Growlator, the Hawaiian happy face spider, which again, not found in Japan, but it is found nearby in Hawaii. Eridos is not as easy to pin down to species. Based on the anime, Eridos seems to be some sort of orb weaving species, and after looking up some orb weavers that are found in Motohokone, aka Araneids, that is the family they belong to, I would say my best assigned species would be Araneus Ishisawai. Ishisawai. Since it, it has striped legs and a similar reddish coloration in some individuals. While it was likely this is unplanned, it is fairly accurate to find spiders like Theridion Grolador and Uranius Ishisawe in trees. Though if you had but a tree in real life, I'm not going to guarantee spiders are going to come falling down right away. But we actually do have a method in entomology, interacnology, where we beat trees to get invertebrates to fall down. So it's not too far off from the truth, headbutting the tree. Um, in this case, we call it a beading sheet. So we, we put this like a bed sheet across like pipes, like a, it looks like a kite basically. And then you get a big stick and you hold the sheet under the tree and you hit the, you hit the leaves, you hit a branch and it shakes down all the invertebrates and they land on top of that sheet. And you have this nifty device called an aspirator, which is a tool we use to literally suck up the bugs that fall down. So it's like a straw connected to a vial and we just breathe in and they all come through the tube. It's super awesome. Haven't you had your own experiences with that and uh, potentially unfortunate interactions in regards to using that tube? My biggest fear is sucking up a caterpillar and it exploding. And that also can happen with spiders if they are thick and juicy enough. And commonly, when you, when I did this in on an island, a lot of times we would find ant colonies that would come falling down. And ants release what's called formic acid. It's not harmful, but you don't want to obviously like drink a bottle of it. Not that you could get a bottle of it, but anyways... Formic acid definitely has a taste because when you suck up the ants, they release the formic acid and it's just, it's gross. I, I do not envy people who study ants, especially tropical ants, for this exact reason and more, including what has been called crotch ants, which I will not elaborate on. But again, I do not envy ant people. <laughs> and what do you mean? Ant people have it made. They get to put stilts on ants for science. That is true, although I don't know how I would feel about cutting off little leggies and putting stilts on them and that making like dark, yeah. a Frankenstein creation of an ant. Okay, here is my theory crafting for today. Let's say Spinarak or Ariados behave similarly, similarly to Theridion Gralator, the happy face spider. The ones mm. found in Hawaii. Theridion Gralator likes to live on the underside of leaves. Because mm -hmm. Spinarak is about one foot tall, 
and Ariados is about four foot. I'm going to go on a limb here and say they do not use traditional plants like Theridian Gralator because they are very large. But perhaps they would use plant Pokemon as habitat. Stay with me here, okay? In Heart Gold Soul Silver, Sea Dot can be found in Viridian Forest, and this implies that Nuzleaf or Shift Tree could also potentially live there, though you can't catch them in Viridian Forest. But if this is true, then I think it would be possible for plant dwelling Pokemon like Spinarak and Ariados to form mutualistic relationships with plant Pokemon. In this case, I imagine a Spinarak hanging out under the hair of Shift Tree. Maybe even some of the hair is part of the web. But as you know, I'm very biased towards invertebrates. So I am going to make an active, concerted effort to mention a vertebrate. And that vertebrate is Pidgey. Pidgey and Pidgeotto are some of the only non-bug types you can catch in Viridian Forest. My friends and I have this joke that I'm anti-bird. I am not anti-bird, but I jokingly refuse to learn literally anything about birds. This bit has been going on for years, and I have faced the consequences of it. And the consequences of this bit are that I actually don't know that much about birds. So as I was trying to think about the Pidgey evolutionary line and the ecology of Viridian Forest, I was researching birds, and then I was like, why am I researching this on Google? There's literally an ornithologist right above me that I can ask. So I did. I will say, in the defense of birds, birds are strange creatures. Saw the seagull eat an entire hot dog. Oh They're my just God. built different. Based. I will, also, uh, <laughs> I will also say as well, we do have, in regards to headbutt Pokemon as well, we do have the Noctowl line that you mentioned earlier. Hoot Hoot and Noctowl. So you're going to knock them out of a tree, you know, get the stick, get the little sheet out. You're going to have to knock them out of that tree first, but they are another vertebrate in there. Oh, I wanted to bring up really quick, actually, because Krikatot in Heart Gold Soul Silver is a swarm Pokemon zone event. So Krikatot does spawn in there. Radio Pokemon, which were other event type things, you do get Spoink, Numel, Badoo, which actually does make sense, and Carnivine. So I know part of this is them trying to fit in as many Pokemon as possible via these random events. That is on the itinerary if you need another vertebrate to talk about, and namely Spoink, technically Numel as well, or more plant and foliage. Yeah. I had no I had to, idea. I had to do some digging. Just got to know where to dig. <laughs> The ornithologist that I had mentioned earlier, her name is Angela. Love her. She's an ornithology PhD student with the Shizuka Lab at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. And I traveled all the way up to the fourth floor of our building to ask her about Pidgey. And I wanted her blind reaction to an image of the Pidgey evolution line and what we can tell about it just from a single image. And just as a heads up, the image I showed her included Pidgey, Pidgeotto, and Pidget. So the whole evolutionary line... And also, I don't think Angela knows much about Pokemon, if at all, because it seemed like she had no idea what she was looking at at first. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Here we go. Let me start over. Okay, what would I say about this bird? Based on its beak, because it has that little hook in the beak, it is a meat eater. Oh, okay. Or an insect eater. I'm going to say an insect eater, not a big hooked beak like an eagle. Um, but it has a little bit of a hooked beak, so it could be an insect eater, like a American kestrel. They're little and fierce, and they eat 
So that's super interesting as, as an observation because we like do that. see in the episode Indigo League, very early Indigo League, I believe it's the second episode or third, I can't remember offhand, it's been too many years, where, you know, Ash does try to throw out a Caterpie versus a Pidgeotto he finds in Viridian Forest. And what does the Pidgeotto begin to do? Misty begins berating him. Birds eat bugs, you, you loon. <laughs> that's not the exact word. I'm trying to censor myself a little bit. <laughs> But we we do see, we do see that we do see that interaction in Indigo League. We do see that you know Pidgeotto is trying to go after Caterpie as as prey. We we do see this interaction. Um, I would say I've never seen feet like that on a real bird, but it's a perching bird because it can it can grasp branches. I would say it, it puts on really amazing mating displays because it has this really, really, really awesome head crest that I totally want to see in action because I'm impressed by it. And I see in the intermediate stage, it's like, it seems like it's tail. Those are molt limits. That's how we would age the bird, actually. So molting is when they drop old feathers and grow new feathers. Um, in the case of a, a young bird, they are dropping their baby feathers, so to speak, like we drop our baby teeth, and growing in their adult, the first generation adult plumage, which is often colored different than baby plumage. Um, so in this case, I would say it still has some of its baby tail feathers and a few of its adult tail feathers. Um, and we'd be able to look at that and be like, oh, that those feathers are adults, those are still juvenile feathers. So this is a first year bird that hasn't reached sexual maturity yet <laughs> or something of that sort. I don't know, what else, what else? What else would I, would I think about this bird? Does this bird, do you think it could migrate? Does it look like it winters in the same place it lives? There's no way to know that really by okay. how a bird looks. Um, the way a bird looks doesn't really tell you, there's no physical characteristics that tell you if it's a migrator or not. Yeah, so that would be unknown. We wouldn't know. So if we I would say it's a good flyer, um, but I would say it's not a, um, uh, oh, I don't know what the term is, um, but a prolonged flyer. For example, like albatross or stories, the albatross goes to sea and doesn't come to land again for like a couple years. Um, so their wings are shaped a certain way that allows them to fly with minimal movement, conserving energy for years at a time. Whereas this bird has wings that are more typical birds that are more agile, that can, um, not necessarily a bird that lives like in like like really thick forest inside. It doesn't have to dodge around branches all the time, but it can if it has to. Um, so it would be a good flying bird, but not long-term endurance. So to speak, I would say it lives at the tops of trees or open fields. Yeah. As opposed to like underbrush. It doesn't live in the underbrush based on wings. <laughs> so if we were to say this was based on sparrows, even if we just look at the juvenile, like the baby stage, that first one, what do you know about sparrows that perhaps that, ties into this? Well, sparrows was definitely my first my first instinct to say but then i'm like but look at that face you know that's a that's a clever little hunter and sparrows are really cool but they don't look that smart <laughs> um so sparrows i'm sorry i totally forgot your question already so sparrows 
Yes. So let's say this is based on sparrows. What about sparrows could relate to this image? Is there anything in common or do you think it's just like it looks like a sparrow, but it has nothing in common with sparrows in terms of what it eats or how it flies, that sort of thing? Well, based on its general shape and kind of like its face, where the face coloration is, lots of sparrows have that face coloration on the juvenile especially, not the head plumage thing, but the juvenile, the baby one. Um, the wing pattern and like the wing to body proportion is sparrowish, um, which would be... It, it would be in the same ecosystems. I mean, it can be like on the ground, but it's not necessarily preferring to live in thick, dense forests all the time or like on the ground with bushes or trees you can fly in between or fields and stuff of that sort. Um, definitely has wings that would match with a sparrow, uh, body proportions that would match to a sparrow. The beak is kind of sparrowish, but that little extra hook on the adult one is what leads me to think, oh, maybe in adult form it could be hunting a little bit more bigger insects than a sparrow would. So because the adult form or the final form of this Pokemon is non-sexually dimorphic, can that tell us anything about perhaps its mating behaviors? Well, I would say that it might not do a mating display with that great crown plumage because um, that's typically a sexually selected trait um, that leads to a sexual dimorphism in the adult forms where one would have that great plumage signal and the other wouldn't. Um, so I would say that those great crest feathers play no role in it at all. Um, so what role they might play, they might not play a role. It might just be like a evolutionary extra that kind of maybe a you know genetically tied to a trait that was adaptive for them and that's just a beautiful side no yeah it would be an expensive trait because <laughs> you got to grow this feather you would think it would slow you down it's flashy it might attract predators so um yeah i think i would have to study like okay if they both have this totally crazy crown plumage it's not a sexually selected dimorphism I would totally want to study, like, why do they have this? Like, how, how, how is this, you know, not making them all, like, get pecked off, you know, by the predators? Who knows? So that is the clip uh, from Angela that I was able to talk with her today. What did you think about what she said? I feel like there's so much to talk about. I, uh, first, first of all, I absolutely loved everything about that. She clearly knows what she's talking about. It was an absolute pleasure to hear her speak on this. As somebody that has looked at pokemon for oh god almost two decades at this point hasn't it oh man i'm old and you know who's grown up with pidgeot pidgeotto pidgey right you know they're generally the first bird pokemon that you come across to hear just this other side of it is absolutely amazing one question i do have really quick as this does actually tie into a little bit of the response that i have did you happen to show her mega pidgeot i did not um i thought about it but i thought we would just stick to more of the older versions of Viridian Forest because I don't think there's an instance any is there an instance where we we might see it in the game perhaps not in an official capacity no you'd be looking at a ROM hack you'd be looking at any an unofficial capacity for that I wanted to ask because a lot of the points that she did bring up would be 
indicative or it would tie into her points in regards to the physical characteristics, you know, uh, phenotypical, uh, even genetic markers, right? Uh, sexual dimorphism, as she was mentioning, which, you know, there are Pokemon that do have male and female traits. You do have female Pikachu who have the heart tail. You do have male versus female Wooper, right? Female Wooper has the the one prong on the sides versus the two. So, I mean, you know, we see uh, a number of these things and we do see Gen 4 going forward, which is, you know, Diamond, Pearl, Platinum, Heart, Gold, Soul, Silver, a lot of that sexual dimorphism in Pokemon, not everyone mind you not every single pokemon gets that treatment you know not everybody is wobbuffet and gets fabulous lipstick (laughs) enough and it was very interesting to hear that from a scientific standpoint i always thought of pidgey and that line as somewhat boring because it was one of the early pokemon you run into and kind of a starter pokemon if you will but now that i've heard angela talk about the Pidgey line, I'm like, I'm going to ditch my job as an arachnologist and go study bird Pokemon because that was really cool. <laughs> like it made it was really cool. It, it reignited my interest in this particular line. And I feel like if you showed a scientist, you know, a picture of a Pokemon that represents their study animal, I just I would love to do this over and over and over again with so many Pokemon. And I, I hope to continue to do this. But yeah, Angela's awesome. I, I thought that was so cool everything she could gather from just a single image and also you know being told like oh it's not sexually dimorphic what do we know about that or if it's based on this animal does it align with that animal kind of thing and it was it was nothing short of an absolute pleasure to hear her talk about it yeah a lot of people will write off pidgey pidgeotto and pidgeot i mean there are certain instances where i've run through a game such as crystal or fire red and absolutely used one on my team it's not a bad choice by any means it's really not it has a little bit of a high evolution cap level in comparison to something like you know maybe like Firo, but at the end of the day, you know, a lot of people would write it off as a lot of people write off Caterpie as a lot of people would write off Paris and Parasect in gen one, which thus getting into the competitive side of gen one and how psychic was absolutely broken in gen one. And that was a whole spaghetti coding mess. Uh, A lot of people, you know, were able to look at Paris and Parasect and be like, okay, but you counter psychic. We're using Weedle or using uh, the Weedle line. We're using Beedrill and using twin needle and Jolteon with pin missile and Parasect because you you have bug things and that deals with the most oppressive typing in the format at that time. Gen 1, Psychic was de facto the best typing in the game. It had immunity to Ghost due to a coding issue. It, you know, Dark type didn't exist yet, so it didn't have a heart. It didn't have a counter uh, or, or even real checks. And, you know, you will see when you go to play quote-unquote competitive Gen 1, as there is a solved meta for Gen 1, I'd have to find the list. Uh, Mew and Mewtwo are generally always banned as they just do a whole heck of a lot uh you have to remember in gen one as well amnesia did boost both special attack and special defense as in gen one special was a singular stat so you have a mewtwo do two amnesia boosts and suddenly you're maxed out so while people circling back might overlook things like you know the weed line might overlook parasect might overlook pidgeotto you know that, that entire line it sometimes just takes looking at it from a different lens where from a competitive standpoint, I can say, well, I mean, doesn't really do it for me, but hearing someone who's passionate about this, that this is their expertise, that this is their field is nothing short of just perfect to hear. And I love the passion. I love the the drive. I love the knowledge presented. And, you know, it, it brings me great joy to hear people talk about 
these things. Absolutely. I when I was thinking about Caterpie and Beedrill too, I was like, oh, Beedrill's actually kind of badass because it probably parasitizes Caterpie. We probably have Weedle being planted as eggs in Caterpie that spring out, or maybe perhaps they pupate inside, but typically they would come out, they'd pupate, and then they turn into Beedrill because a lot of wasps are parasitic. And I think that would be super cool to consider those interactions between Pokemon. And perhaps Beedrill could even parasitize Spinarak or Ariados because a lot of wasps are parasites of spiders. If, if there's a bug, there is a wasp to parasitize it, is what I have learned over the years. And wasps may be the most diverse group of animals on the planet. Right now, it is, I think, officially beetles, but a lot of hymenopterists are saying wasps may be more diverse. Which is super interesting to consider. I know there's the whole TikTok trends that have been going around in the past year where people are catching wasps or entire wasp nests and shaking it up. Don't do that. I can't. Con- don't do that, please. <laughs> um, but that's super interesting to hear. And I know people. a lot of people will write off wasps. And, you know, we, we even have a cool mega bee drill form, if you remember. Obviously, that's a little into, you know, technically that's the X and Y timeline going forward. Alt timeline from the original, technically, Gens 1 through 5. Uh, but it does provide, you know, potentially credence to that theory, especially if you look at the, the stinger on that. It, it could very well be. And even in Gen 1, we already have in-game examples of parasitism on Pokemon. As mentioned previously, we have Paris and Parasect, which is taken over by fungal spores. It's taken over by, I'm trying to remember the term for it, Cordyceps, I believe, is what we think it is. I'd have to check if the Pokedex entries confirm it or not, but we do have issues of in-universe parasitation. Absolutely. A lot of what Angela said, too, makes me think back to food web dynamics. And I used to work with a lab that did some studies on food web dynamics. And I want to talk about that for just a little bit. I think most players with familiar with Pokemon think, you know, Viridian Forest is overrun with bug type Pokemon. And one thing that sticks out to me in this instance is the only vertebrate insectivore seemingly is this Pidgey, Pidgeot, Pidgeotto line. And this totally reminded me of when I worked for Dr. Roger. Dr. Halder Rogers at Iowa State. And Dr. Halder Rogers is a professor who is now at Virginia Tech, and she studies the ecology of bird loss. And she understands this through the ecosystems of the Mariana Islands. And the story goes that in World War II, brown tree snakes were carried over to the island of Guam by accident on U.S. cargo ships likely coming from New Guinea. And the brown tree snakes proliferated and began to eat all the birds. As of 2008, 10 out of 12 forest bird species on Guam have gone extinct. There is evidence that the loss of these native species has had cascading effects, and most notably, the loss of native birds has disrupted mutualisms between frugivorous birds and plants. In a paper by Rogers published in Nature Communication in 2017, this disruption may be responsible for a 61 to 92% decline in seedling recruitment, meaning there is a loss in how many new seeds are being added to the plant population. A 2012 paper by Rogers in uh, PLS01, I don't know if people call it PLOS1, anyways, 
Rogers and her research team found that Guam had a significantly higher density of spiderwebs than on neighboring islands where many of the native birds still exist. And the list goes on about how these snakes may have impacted the island of Guam, including impacting lizards and bats. And there's no telling what other effects are happening that haven't been thoroughly studied yet. As someone who's actually been there, I've, I've been to the Mariana Islands. It's extremely tangible, the differences between the islands. It is so noticeable that there are more spiders on Guam. Anecdotally, I have no research to back this up, but mosquitoes were also horrendous on Guam. But on the other islands, I had no issues. And it, if you're there, it just sticks out to you. If, if someone points it out to you, you're like, oh, this is definitely different. And the Ecology of Bird Loss Lab has this unforgettable quote that I think sums this all really nicely. And that quote goes, what is the fate of a silent forest? Just super something to think about, because in this very powerful video that Dr. Rogers has made, she shows what the forest of Guam sounds like versus the forest of Saipan, which is a neighboring island. And the video of Guam is silent, just dead silent. And this goes back to my point that Viridian forests, lack of biodiversity, reminds me a lot of the studies conducted by Haldra and other researchers across the Marianas. And in my theory crafting, this is where I'm headed, perhaps something has happened in Viridian forests that has created this lack of diversity. Invertebrates are abundant and vertebrates are few. I have so many questions, like what is the population of Pidgey, Pidgeotto, etc.? How many bug types are they eating? Are they eating a wide diversity of bug types? How is the population of Beedrill also impacting this since they would also be preying on these fellow bug types? And how is all of this impacting the flora and the fauna of Viridian Forest? What if we compared Viridian Forest to the other Pokemon forests as well, like Eterna Forest, Petalburg Woods? Think even like lush jungle in Alola, which is an island forest. Anyways, I digress. I think, you know, we talked about how Angela's talk just kind of spurs all of these questions based off of this one particular animal. And I don't know, I'm, I'm just very excited about all of this. So you actually bring up a good point. And I'm going to be citing, uh, this is the Heart Gold Soul Silver decks. This is the, so Heart Gold Soul Silver in order to kind of bring everything to the forefront, bring make sure, make sure no one was missing out on Pokemon, right? This was a different era of Pokemon, you have to understand. You know, this was before Dexit, this was before um, a lot of the whole regional Dexes. I mean, we, we had regional Dexes, don't get me wrong, but this was national Dex was very much the gold standard. Uh, we did have a radio Pokemon section where you would hear over the radio, there is Pokemon here, or there is this Pokemon here. And I feel that I could answer your question because one of the radio Pokemon in Heart, Gold, and Soul Silver is Carnivine to Viridian Forest. Now, if we look up Venus flytraps, trying to find the actual scientific name, but I totally spaced it. They are... One moment, Kip. For our listeners who don't know what radio Pokemon are, do you want to explain really quick? Yeah, absolutely. So Heart, Gold, Soul, Silver. Uh, and I apologize, I glossed over that a little bit. There were events in older Pokemon. As This was a different era. You would get calls via your little Pokenav or Pokegear or whatever. I can't remember what it was in Heart, Gold, Soul, Silver by name. And... No, it was over the radio specifically. Radio in the Pokegear. There we go. And you would 
be informed, hey, there are there's an influx of this Pokemon or there's an influx at this route, right? You would get an in-game notification using the in-game's internal time features, right? And, you know, I assume RNG in certain situations where, yes, this is an event that is currently happening. So if you're, say, missing something from Viridian Forest, you would keep an eye out for on the radio. Hey, there's something happened in Viridian Forest. There's Carnivine in Viridian Forest, and then you could go get it. This was kind of similar to, I think it was Altering Cave on the Sevi Isles in Gen 3. For those that don't know, it was supposed to be a way to bring Gen 2 Pokemon up to Gen 3, but we never got that in any official capacity. So it was a way from a different era of Pokemon where the National Dex was the gold standard and in-game feature to find Pokemon that you normally could not. And a lot of people miss that, I will say. So that that's kind of a breakdown of the radio feature. It is a way to know where in-game spawns are. Anyways, Carnivine, as you were saying, so, and following on that logic, we have Carnivine as one of these radio Pokemon based on a Venus flytrap. Venus flytraps are, by definition, carnivorous. If we look at the height of Pidgeot, right, you know, and this is excluding Mega because, you know, at, at most the top tier that this could reach, this is going to reach approximately 1.5 meters or 4 foot 11 inches for US metrics, right? Now, if we look at Carnivine, we have a different height ratio. We have approximately 4 foot seven inches i'm trying to find the calculation to metric but i can't it's escaping me right now i apologize so at absolute max we have this giant meaty bird giant meaty vertebrae meat carnivore food right who maxes out at approximately four foot eleven and you have this potentially invasive species right because oh well yeah it's not like it's in the regular drop table you have to be told via radio, hey, this is happening here. You should go check this out, you know, for your decks, maybe. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And you have this four foot seven inch fast Venus flytrap with eyes that isn't going to have to necessarily <laughs> rely on sensory organs within the, within the, sepals isn't the correct word. I'm trying to remember the actual word, but how they have sensors inside and then the Venus flytrap will close on its prey in actuality. This thing just isn't really barred by those limits. It could just dart for the Pidgeot or the Pidgeotto and just go to town, theoretically, hypothetically. So that does encapsulate your argument of invasive species. It's it's not a normal encounter in here, which I feel does kind of feed into that. And it is a natural carnivore that is present in the forest. Just food for thought. Literally, food for thought. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm really glad you brought that up. I definitely did not think beyond what specifically could have happened, but I enjoy your theory crafting with an invasive Pokemon coming into Viridian Forest and perhaps wreaking havoc on the food web dynamics that occurred initially in Viridian Forest. And it would be so interesting if there was like an Arceus version of Gen 1 where we could go back in time and see if Viridian Forest was perhaps different. And I would argue because it's a later gen, it would probably be more diverse and we could have built more theory crafting off of that. But anyways, I am theory crafting on theory crafting. I <laughs> could go on and on about Viridian Forest and forest ecology, but it is time for us to go, unfortunately. But I am so thankful, Kip, for you for joining us for the first ever episode of Ecology XP. Thank you listeners for tuning in to EXP. And I know we are out of time, but listeners, if you want to keep the conversation going, 
You can join the Pika Science Discord, which will be linked below, where you can chat with me, the entire cast of Pika Science, and fellow listeners. Kip, before we go, any any last words? First of all, thank you for having me. I absolutely enjoyed being here. It was an absolute pleasure. It was a pleasure to discuss not only Pokemon, but ecology as well as a lover of history and science and uh, certain uh, higher education aspects and classes. I absolutely loved being here and discussing these. I uh, can't wait to, uh, to look forward to the work that you're going to put out down the line and what awesome people are going to be commenting, what awesome people you're going to be working with and corroborating with. This is an absolute pleasure and I uh, can't recommend this enough. Do you have anything you would like to plug, any socials, anything that you're currently doing? If you would like to follow me, a professional grade dingus, you know, I am Kizuna Kip, K-I-Z-U-N-A-K-I-P. I am on YouTube. I am on Twitch. Uh, I don't really use Twitter X much anymore. Uh, however, we do also have a Discord server. I assure you I am part of not only uh, uh, the Pika Science Discord, I am also part of... Uh, Nico's Discord server here as well. Um, absolutely just awesome places. I can't recommend them enough. And uh, yeah, if you ever need a place to chill out, any of these servers, mine or hers or theirs, are I'm really not worried. And finally, if you want to follow me, Jillian, on my socials, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bugs or Bust. B-U-G-S-O-R-B-U-S-T. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you for tuning in and leveling up. We'll see you next time on EXP.